The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, church, I got to coach you guys up a little bit here. I know it's 830 service and you think I'm being hard on you, but just wait till you see this text. Okay, imagine you, you're, you're, you're a free person. It's America. You can do whatever you want this afternoon. And imagine I just contacted you and it's not Father's Day, so you don't have things going on or whatever. And I'm like, hey, um... Want to go to the river and do a little bit of fishing? The bite's on, salmon flies are hatching. You want to go up to the river this afternoon? And you were like, um, you had nothing planned. And so you're like, yeah, I'm free. That's kind of how you'd say it, right? Everybody say that. Yeah, I'm free. Okay, but now imagine something different. Imagine you're in prison with no hope for escape. It's dark, it's cold, and you are convinced without question that you'll die there. And you know you deserve to be there. And out of nowhere, someone appears. Keys in hand. They unlock the gate. And they say, you're free. And you walk outside out of that dark place into light. You feel the warmth of the sun for the first time. You feel the hope of, I can have a life now where I didn't before. You feel Everything feels new. Everything feels like a new start. And you still can't even wrap your mind around the fact that you're not in that prison anymore. And if I said, what's your current state? And you said, you're free. You wouldn't go, yeah, I'm free. You'd say, I'm free, right? So in a song like that, we say it like that. So say it with me. I'm free. Now pretend it's one in the afternoon. I'm free. That's how we'll sing that next weekend, right? That's how that works. And you guys show the 1030 people what's up. All right. Uh, In the meantime, grab your Bibles now. Turn to Luke chapter 11, if you would. We have all sorts of stuff to talk about this morning. And I have a book to give away here. Um, This book's written by my friend Harvey Turner, who pastors uh, down in Reno, Nevada. Um, Some of you guys might remember him as the speaker at Man Camp a few years ago. And he wrote this awesome book about evangelism, which instantly usually makes people not want to come get the free book because that's one of the more least popular topics that a lot of people take on within Christianity. But this is the idea. This book is called Friend with Sinners. And the idea is this. Winning people to Jesus is actually, or can be, quite natural if done through the relationships that you have around you in your community. And so he gives you, can I get an amen first of all for a short book? Amen, right? But a solid, deep, amazing book about how achievable being on mission for Jesus and winning your friends and neighbors over to Christ can be. Um, So I want to encourage you guys, if you don't get one of the free ones, go buy this. We put it up on social media today. So later you can go check out the names, get on Amazon, whatever the case may be. Um, But make sure you check this book out. I believe that you will be absolutely blessed by it. Friend to Sinners by Harvey Turner. In the meantime, Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to show you guys a little bit of grace. Yeah, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll make sure that you get one so you can track with. Um, We're going to be covering a whole bunch of verses today. So I'm going to show you guys grace and we're not going to stand as we read through the whole text, um, which is less about me worried about us being tired and more about me worried about whether I'm going to finish this on time. So uh, we're just going to dive into this. And as we're beginning to dive into the text, I want you guys to be thinking about something, okay? Light. We just talked about that. Just, it really goes in line with what I was just talking about. Light can mean hope. 
Like if you're the one, like I just mentioned, if you're the person in the prison, in the dark, cold prison, light can mean hope. If you're lost in the woods or you're, you're lost at night and you can't find your way and you don't know where to go, light can become salvation to you. It helps you see where to go. It helps you see what to avoid. Even the warmth on your skin can bring such hope. They say actually one of the top things for helping people that are wrestling with depression is actually being outside in the sunlight. I mean, light brings hope. It brings life. Without light, there's no life. Light brings clarity. We can see where we're going. We can see where we need to be. We can see where we are. Light is a great thing for those who are lost and realize how much they need it. But light also means judgment. Because if you like being in the darkness and the light comes then the light's repulsive. The light exposes you for where you are. The light shows what it is you really cling to. The light, you either run to it or you run from it. And that's really what Jesus is going to be talking about to a great degree in this particular text. But it all starts with a sign. Now you remember the context, if you will. Jesus has been teaching many people. He's been going through the area. All these incredible works have taken place. He teaches the Lord's Prayer, teaches his followers how to pray. And he's going through all this. And and then as he's doing these different works and casting out demons, as we looked at last week, he's accused of being, some would say, man, this guy has been empowered by the devil if he's able to do this. And other people go, "Eh, I don't know who he is, but I like the tricks that he's able to do. And and so I want to follow him around. I want to see some more of this kind of stuff. And then a smaller, much, much, much smaller group uh, of his actual followers know him to be the Messiah. They know who he is. And Jesus teaches about this. He talks about whoever's not with me is against me. And he even defines those as with him as believing in who he is and actually those who are part of the gathering of people to him. This this idea of salvation and rescuing those who have been lost in the world. And he's speaking this intentionally to a group of people who, instead of being on program with Jesus about saving and being a, a source of salvation to the world, they've not only not been part part of that, but they've actually been operating in a way that is in opposition to that. And that's what Jesus is going to dive into hard in this particular text today. So as all this is going and he's teaching and, and all this stuff's going on. And and then this lady, you remember last week, she calls out and she's like, Oh, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you. And he turns to her and he says, no, 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 look, this isn't about who we are, who we were born under. That's not the issue. He says in verse 28 of Luke chapter 11, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And he's talking about discipleship. If you think about the Great Commission, which many of us know, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it a million times. When, when the Great Commission is given, Jesus tells his disciples, go into the world and make disciples. And then he defines it and he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so discipleship, following Jesus, is not simply about just a general belief in who he is. James will go on to say even the demons believe in who Jesus is, and they even shudder at the notion of it. But there's this idea of we believe in who he is, and because of that we want to follow him, we want to obey him, we want to honor him as our king. And he says that those people are blessed And so as he's teaching these things, crowds begin to increase. And so verse 29, it says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. 
But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what's he talking about here? So people are coming around and groups are wanting a sign. And Jesus knows their hearts. He can discern their hearts and their thoughts. And they're all coming to see him do more things to try to prove who he is. At least that's their mentality as they're looking at it. Or at the very least, just wanting a show. You guys remember the David Blaine example last week? If you missed it, you missed out. But this is what's actually going on here, okay? And, and he says, this is a wicked generation to the people that are coming. And he says, they all want a sign, but no sign's going to be given them except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jonah, to say to those people, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, you have to divorce yourself a little bit from this idea, the Sunday school familiarity we might have with Jonah, because there's a sense in which we love that story. I mean, especially as kids growing up, it's like the whole, the fish and all that kind of stuff. And then VeggieTales came along and somehow instead of fish just eating people, they're slapping people with fish. There's all this sort of craziness that sort of makes the story of Jonah sort of this funny, lighthearted thing. But the story of Jonah is anything but that. Jonah's kind of a tragic character. Jonah would be the prophet in the Old Testament that you do not want to be like in pretty much any way whatsoever. He's sort of this tragic figure. He's the prophet who hates the people that he's sent to. He's the prophet who runs away from the job that he's given. He's the prophet who's thrown into the ocean because of his disobedience. He's the prophet even a fish couldn't stomach. And he's the prophet who gets mad with God over a plant that withered. Like actually gets angry at God because a plant ends up withering up. He's the guy who goes to the people of Nineveh when God finally gets him there, and he tells the people of Nineveh to repent. And he never wanted them to do it. He's like, all right, I'm going to go do it. Repent. And inside he's like, please don't do it, please don't do it, please don't do it, please don't do it. Because he cannot stand the people. And when they actually do repent, and they actually do turn to God, they repent of their sins, Jonah gets mad, and he literally tells God, Lord, this is what I was talking about when I ran away from the beginning. Because I knew that you're a good and gracious God. Think about saying this when you're mad. I knew that you're good and gracious. I knew that you would forgive him. And that's why I ran away in the first place. I knew you would do this. That's Jonah. So to think of Jonah as being an Old Testament hero in the same level of like David or Moses or Elijah, not so much. So what's he saying here? Well, in other places, Jesus does talk about the sign of Jonah when he's speaking to his actual re resurrection. He speaks about the fact that as Jonah was swallowed by the fish and then was spit out later, so I too will die and I will rise again. And he speaks about his own resurrection. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not actually speaking about his own resurrection per se in this particular text, though it usually does get taught this way. He's actually talking more about the sign of Jonah with reference to the actual Ninevites. The people who Jonah went and spoke to, in spite of all of his flaws, this train wreck of a preacher comes, 
preaches about the glory of God and the call to repentance, and they responded. They obeyed. They heard the word of God and obeyed it, and they repented. And then he goes into this Queen of Sheba story, where in, you guys know the story, Solomon, when the kingdom of Israel was really an actual kingdom at that time, and Solomon was so wise and so wealthy, and the kingdom had really kind of hit its high point, this queen from this far off place known as Sheba comes all the way because she's heard stories about this wisdom that this man has. She's heard about this kingdom that's there. And she's like, I just have to come see this. And so she comes, Jesus actually puts it. And you might notice the words here. If you're thinking about great commission, it says that she came from where? From the ends of the earth. She came to see this man of wisdom and to see this kingdom and to see it for herself. And he's saying, Here's Jesus. He's saying, look, someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone way greater than Jonah is here. And one day, the people that responded to what those people saw in the day are going to rise. Now, when he says rise there, he is talking about resurrection. But he's not actually speaking about his own resurrection. He's talking about theirs. So what's he saying? He's saying, Israel, you better pay attention Because someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And the word of me is going to go throughout the ends of the earth. And one day, when that day of judgment comes, they're going to rise. Now remember what I told you at the very beginning? Light for some is hope. But light for some is judgment. And on that day, when for example, the people of Nineveh, rise in resurrection because of the faith that they had put in God. Their resurrection will be a glorious event for them, but it will be judgment for those who rejected Jesus because it will be evidence of the fact that everything Jesus ever said was true. When the people who came to see Solomon's glory and heard about God, he's saying, listen, people, Israel, listen to me, people from all over the earth are going to rise again on that day of judgment. And that's going to be a sign to you of the fact that you missed who I was in the first place. Because to, to you, I was just a show. Or you didn't want to believe in who I am because you loved the darkness you were living in so much. To, to admit that I'm Lord means you have to set your own prestige aside. To admit that I was king means you're not as important as you think you are right now. To admit that I am the Messiah means having people follow me, not you. And on that last day, when everyone else is raising from the dead and it's this incredible light and triumph for so many people, it's actually going to be a time of judgment for you. And he's warning them, don't miss who I am. And think about it. Is it not true? I mean, Medford, Oregon is pretty much the ends of the earth compared to Israel where Jesus is telling this story, right? The word of God has spread all over because we have heard of this one who's greater than Solomon. We have heard of this one of of infinite wisdom. We've heard of these things. And if you have put your faith in him, one day you will rise again. But for those who have rejected Jesus, the happiest moment in our existence ever will be the worst moment in their existence. Because our resurrection means condemnation for those who rejected Jesus. So how do you handle that? If you're here and you're a Christian, that's not a source of pride. It should be a sense of sorrow. Not for us, but I mean for them. Think of Paul in the book of Romans. 
when he writes about his own people in Romans 9, 10, and 11, a a passage that a lot of people in our day and age cling to with pride about their election. And in that writing, what is Paul's heart? You read the beginning of Romans 9, and he's heartbroken for those who are rejecting Jesus. And he's begging them that they would come to Jesus. Paul wishes he could take their place. That's how much sorrow he has for those who are lost. And so Jesus isn't pointing this out to go, they were right, you were wrong, nah, 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 nah. He's saying, this is real. Don't miss this. And his heart for those who are rejecting him is actually a heart of sorrow. Even when he comes into Israel and they've rejected him, doesn't he go up on the hill? And what does he say? He weeps over Jerusalem and says, I would have gathered you like a bird gathering its babies. You wouldn't see, you didn't recognize who I am. And he's weeping over the fact that many people, because they're rejecting Jesus in that moment, have sealed their fate. And he's brokenhearted over it. This passage is about mission. This passage is about how we were saved and what we do with that. And he's telling them, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And then look what happens. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. That seems a little confusing, some of that kind of stuff. Don't let the light be darkness. If there's a little bit of light in you, it's dark, you're in trouble, but there's a little bit of light. One day it's going to be a whole lot of light. What is he actually talking here? Okay, so don't get this confused with his teachings on the, um, the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about salt and light and about being a witness to others. This is really more expounding even more on that, but with an intentional audience in mind. And he's telling these people, listen, don't miss the fact that the light has come to you. I'm here. I'm the greater than Solomon. I'm the greater than Jonah. I'm the light. Don't miss that I've come. And Jesus also here is talking about purity of motive with what we do with that. And that's going to segue into the bulk of what we're talking about this morning in a huge, huge way. Here's the idea. The peop- Jesus is calling out these people who want signs. And he's doing it because of their motives. Say, so, well, Why? Because they're not looking for a sign because they're looking for the Messiah. If they're looking for a Messiah at all, it's because they want proof positive that they have to give up the darkness that they're actually holding on to. He's calling out the reality of their heart. He's saying, you guys are enjoying the darkness. And I've come to call you to repentance to say, come out of that darkness. And you don't want to, so you're going, "Uh, well then prove to us that that's who you are because we don't want to come out. He's calling out their motives. And so here's what he's talking about. He says, be careful that the light that is in you is not darkness. What does he mean by that? Well, the people of Israel were the chosen people of God. Chosen not because they were amazing. Chosen not because they were the biggest nation. They were chosen for one reason and one reason only. God was gracious to them. In his love and in his wisdom and in his plans, he chose Israel to be a missionary nation to the rest of the world. And he's saying, look, 
your job was to put that light up on a light stand so that the rest of the world would understand who I am. But is that what they did? No. They became selfish, they became arrogant, and they became prideful. As recipients of God's favor, they started thinking that made them the favorite. And then instead of receiving this light and understanding the responsibility that came with it, they looked at this light that they had received. What light are we talking about? The very presence of God. They have the temple. They have the word of God. They have all of these things there that have been given to them. And only them, the rest of the world doesn't have this. And instead of using this in the way God meant to put that light onto a stand so that the rest of the world could see who God is and come to salvation, the Ninevites, for example, and the people from the other ends of the earth, instead of doing that, they got selfish. And that, that prestige that they had because they had the light and they were the chosen people and all of that, it became about them. And so no longer, if you read through any of the Old Testament prophets, they're always calling Israel out for its failure to do this, to act with love and mercy and to share the truth of who God is with the rest of the world. Instead, they became insulary and they said, okay, we are the special ones and they're not. So we separate ourselves from them. We are better than them. We are more godly than them. God loves us more than them. They genuinely believed these things. And instead of becoming missionaries and understanding that responsibility, instead of becoming an avenue by which people would come to God, they actually became a hindrance that prevented people from coming to God. Because we've met people like this. Arrogant people aren't exactly the type of people you tend to just naturally want to come follow and hear what they have to say. They're the kind of people we tend to want to avoid, and then we get angry at, and this is what happened. Think of all the enemies that Israel had all around them, the anger that other nations had towards them. Like this is going on. And Jesus is saying, be careful that that light that is in you doesn't become darkness. Be careful that that calling I gave you, that mission I gave you, the word of God that I gave you, this light that I gave you, it's become darkness in your heart because your motives on what to do with this have completely changed and you've missed everything that I've called you to do. And you don't see this, you don't understand this. And so this light that was supposed to be hope and salvation is now actually judgment on you, Israel. It's like this. Say you're lost in the woods. In fact, this is a really awkward scenario, but let's say 500 of us go hike Mount McLaughlin in the daylight. And you guys know how this works, right? Everybody that hikes Mount McLaughlin thinks right there's the parking lot right down there. Everyone does this every year. It happens over and over and over, but you don't realize the path has taken you way over to the other side of the mountain and you're standing up there and you're like, our parking lot's right down there. And a lot of people think, oh, we could just take a shortcut. We just scramble right down the hill right there and we'll be right to the parking lot. It happens every year. And then what do we see on the news? So-and-so's lost on Mount McLaughlin and crews are being sent out and all this stuff happens all the time. So let's imagine we as a church all went up on Mount McLaughlin. We pulled that same move and we're going down and we got lost. None of us can agree on which way we ought to go, so we all scattered. So now it's, begin it's middle of the night. It is pitch black. It's even cloudy. We don't even have the moon to light the way. And there's 500 people in those Sky Lakes wilderness out there, completely lost, having no idea where they are, freezing cold and storms are coming. And you're hopeless. And because we scattered, you're lost and you're alone. 
You're wondering, man, I, I wonder if I'd have stuck with so-and-so if he would have found the way out. I wonder if so-and-so's got out. I don't even know where anybody is. I'm completely alone. You begin to get afraid. You begin, you're lost. You're cold. You're hungry. You're wondering if you're ever going to get out, if you're ever going to make it out, and you see the storm coming, and you're sure lightning's going to get you, and you're just in trouble. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this huge floodlight appears, and you've been rescued. And a guy comes in with this big old floodlight and it lights up the whole area. You can see where you are and he knows where he is and he's got GPSs and all that stuff. And you're like, oh, we've been saved. This is the greatest day ever. Awesome. Take me back. I want to go to Kaleidoscope. I'm starving. He goes, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're all going to go to Kaleidoscope and we're going to grub and it's going to be great. You're going to get warm. Everything's going to be okay. But here's the deal. I just found you and there's still 499 other people out here that are lost. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a GPS. I'm going to give you a map. And I'm going to give you this flashlight here. And I want you to help me. And you're going to wander around and see who other, uh, the other people that you can find. And in two hours, you're going to meet me at this, this pinpoint on the GPS. You meet me right there. We're going to go and gather up some more people. And I'm going to meet you there and take you to dinner at Kaleidoscope. And we're going to all be together and everyone's going to be saved. And it's going to be amazing. And you're like, okay. I don't really totally know how to do this. I'm a little nervous about this. I don't even, I'm probably not qualified since five minutes ago I was lost. But okay. I'm going to do this. And so you've got your little flashlight and your GPS and your compass. And you're like, all right, here we go. And you find somebody or someone finds you. They see the light and they come to you. And then some others and then some others and then some others. But what if along the way you started going, I kind of like this feeling. All these people sure are happy to see me. I'm like their savior. And they're all following me around. You know, I've got my GPS I got the map and I got the flashlight. I don't need to go meet that other guy. They don't, we got this. I like the attention. I like being the one who's in charge. I like the fact that all these people are following me. And so you go away from what the mission originally given you to be. You reject the will of the one who came and actually saved you. And you're doing your own thing now. And then the floodlight appears again. When the flood lamp comes now, it exposes your heart because you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not leading people back to him where there's an actual source of salvation. You're, you're fine staying in the darkness. You're fine staying over here and having these people following you. You're more concerned about your own prestige than you actually are rescuing any of these other people and getting them over there. And you certainly aren't looking to give all the attention to the main dude who showed up with the big flashlight. So the light that was once salvation and hope now becomes a light of judgment exposing what you were really up to the whole time. That's an imperfect analogy, but this is what Jesus is saying. I gave you a light by which I wanted to save people all over the world. And you made it about you? And now when the light has come, you don't even recognize that it's right in front of you the whole time because you're so inward focused and you're so about you. Be careful, Israel, because when the light does wholly come, he's talking again about the resurrection. When that little light in us is now fully light and we have those redeemed bodies and there's no longer sin in the way, it's going to be really evident who were the people that were loyal to the king, followers of Jesus Christ, and who were not and who are still consumed by darkness. He says, Israel, you better be careful. Watch out. Don't miss this. 
And then there's these Pharisee interactions where Jesus really doubles down. If your image of Jesus is Swedish bathrobe Jesus, like all the movies and all this, the Thomas Kincaid paintings or whatever the case, this mild-mannered, gentle, there's like a dove on his shoulder and he's petting a sheep at the time and all that kind of stuff. If that's your image of Jesus all the time, then this passage right here shatters that paradigm because some would look at Jesus' interaction and he is without sin, don't get me wrong, but some would look at this. In fact, someone's going to look at this and be like, man, he just seems like he's being rude. Take a look what happens. These Pharisees come. Verse 37, And while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, please understand, first of all, given the antagonism that Pharisees have already shown towards Jesus up to this point, this shouldn't be perceived as like, oh, this will be a great time of fellowship. Let's all go have dinner. This is like, oh, they want him to come in there. This is like apprehensions should be heightened. This is, um, this is a tense situation that Jesus is going into. And as they're there, Jesus just sits down to eat and he skips the wash basin to wash his hands or to dip his hands in this water before they're eating. And the Pharisee sees it and he's astonished. It, it's like, look at him. He's not washing his hands. Now, this is not like us with our kids come to dinner and they all come running in. Did you wash your hands? Uh Oh, and then they go back and wash their hands. Like that's not what this is. This isn't about Jesus being dirty. This is about ceremony. This is about what is religiously proper for someone to do. And they're watching Jesus do something that they believe strongly in that Jesus isn't doing. And they're like, Oh, what does he think he's doing? Now, the other thing you have to understand here is this. If you go to the actual Bible, The only thing in that setting that could have happened that would have required Jesus, according to religious beliefs at that time, to wash himself, the only thing that would have required him to do that is if he had come into contact around those people with some form of unclean bodily discharge, whether it be leprosy or or something to that degree, that would have required washing. Other than that, there wasn't a biblical mandate that said he had to wash his hands in order to be ritually clean. And that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about, are your hands clean from dirt? They're talking about, are you ritually, ceremonially, are you religiously pure in that moment? And there was no requirement there in the actual Bible. However, in the Mishnah, which the Jewish religious leaders took the law of God, and over time they compiled all of these other rules that they added on top of all of this. In the Mishnah, there were tons of requirements, tons of things that had been added to God's word requiring one to wash. And Jesus had broken one of their rules, not one of the original covenant in the Old Testament rules. So this is something that's not black and white in scripture, but that the religious community of that time has adopted as something you have to do to be part of the religious community. This is what it means to be God's people. You have to do this. It's their rule and their expectation, not Jesus's. And so he breaks this. And this happens all the time where we take things that are additions to the scripture to kind of pile on top of. And we do it in our time all the time. Like some people would say uh, Christians are not allowed to watch secular movies or Christians are not allowed to have alcohol 
or Christians are not allowed to listen to secular music, or Christians are not allowed to, uh, shouldn't go to secular schools. And, and there's a lot of times we create these insulary rules, which, listen, don't hear me wrong. If you have a certain conviction towards something that might be the word of God speaking wisdom into your life, then listen to the word of God. Um, you know, alcohol is one that comes up all the time. Man, if you have, for example, alcoholism in your background, and God is putting upon your heart, hey, that's not a safe place for you to be. I have better than that planned for you. Then by all means, follow the convictions. Paul says this in Romans, follow the convictions God has given you. But this is like saying, okay, here's the word of God. And here's all the other rules that you have to do in order to be Christian. This is called religion or legalism is what it's referred to. It, it's not like us in our day and age. So, so for example, there's some fundamentalist churches, which I always love how people say this about the name. Fundamentalist churches are, are kind of funny name because there's nothing fun about them whatsoever. But um, fundamentalist churches that would say, hey, Christians should never go to the movies. I mean, you can watch The Passion and you can watch, what's the one, something about giants with the football team and pray for rain, that whole, that's Christian. But you can watch those, Fireproof. You can watch that stuff but you're not going to the Avengers or Star Wars or anything like that because that is secular stuff that's infused with secular belief systems and you're not allowed to go there. Well, if you have that conviction, if, you're like, if the Lord's putting on your heart that that's not a good place for you, then by all means do that. I, I'm not saying, oh, and that includes, for example, porn. Duh, right? Can you say duh? Like we're not talking about blatant, obvious, sinful things. We're talking about the gray areas, you might say. And here... These are religious expectations given the people at that time that are not clearly stated in the scriptures. And so Jesus goes, and he, he knows these rules. He knows what he's doing. He knows he's been invited there through antagonistic reasons. He knows they're not bringing him in there because they're actually seeking. He knows the hearts of all these people. The scriptures have just told us. He knows all these people that are looking at all this. And so he comes in, he sees this religious expectation, and he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'll just have a seat. And he sits down and eats. And he has now offended their sense of religion and religious propriety in not washing. And what they've done in adding those rules, they've taken the importance of something and they have greatly magnified it. So I'll give you an example. In scripture, like I said, there's really only one situation that Jesus would have been in in that particular moment that would have caused him to be ceremonially unclean and to need to wash. And it's found in, you can look it up later if you want, in Leviticus 15, 11. It's just one little thing. And if you read the Old Testament rules, washing in particular, hand washing in the Old Testament law, it, it barely comes up. You certainly wouldn't read the Old Testament law and when you're finished, close the book and go, well, hand washing played a huge role in that. Like it wouldn't come across your mind. Yet in the Mishnah, in, in the text that they hit, all the laws they had added, 25% of those laws were about washing. So they had added tons more rules and then greatly increased the importance of whether those rules were kept. And they were using it to define who's in and who's out. And that's important to understand. It wasn't just about their convictions. It wasn't, it was the, they were using their own rules to decide who's in, drawing lines, 
God's favored and those who need to be saved or those who are on the outside completely and are unclean and we don't want anything to do with them. And what they're really saying in that moment, this whole issue of washing in that moment is that Jesus was out there with people that are unclean. He was around sinners. And therefore he needed to come in and wash his hands. Just think about that for a second. Knowing that the mission of Israel was to spread the love of God to the world everywhere. And now they have laws that have drawn lines that say that if you come in contact to your actual mission target, then you need a bath because that's gross. Just see how far their hearts have slid from what God's called them to do. And now they're using these things to draw lines and say who's in and who's out. And Jesus knows this. And so he just doesn't do it. He's like, I'm not going to play this game. I'm not going to do it. And so watch what Luke does. Verse 39. And the Lord said to him. Okay. The Pharisee sees that Jesus hasn't washed his hands. And he's astonished. <gasps> Look. And then Luke comes in and he doesn't say Jesus said to him, does he? He doesn't say the Messiah. He doesn't say and then him. He says the Lord said to him. That is not on accident. That is an emphatic declaration of where true authority actually comes from. That is Luke saying intentionally, they had their rules, but the Lord says. So this is an emphasis talking about the fact that Jesus is over them. Does that make sense? So the Lord said, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The Lord said, and then how does he refer to the Pharisees? As fools. Now, that, that, it's not an insult. He doesn't mean a bunch of fools. How do you not know this? Because in the Old Testament scripture, a fool, over and over and over, is someone who makes decisions that is constantly leading towards their own destruction. And so he's saying intentionally, you don't realize what you're doing. So he's not saying, bunch of fools. He's going, listen, you don't see what you're doing here. You have no idea where you're headed. That's what he's saying. And so what does he say? Inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You wash the outside, you wash your hands, or you wash this cups, or ceremonial of washings for the cups and all this stuff. It says, but the inside is full of greed and wickedness. Greed here translates an excessive violent desire for more. The kind of desire for more that takes from others is what that's actually saying. And then the word wickedness there also translates perversion. And this is really important for understanding the rest of this text, okay? He's saying, you're all about wanting more so much that you'll take it from other people and you're full of perversion. And what that means is you were given a light. Remember what he said? You were given truths, but you've distorted these things and you've perverted these things to suit your own benefit rather than what they were actually given for. The law was given for a reason. The law was given to not only govern you as a people, but to lead people to an understanding of who I am. And you're using this law, for example, this whole washing thing, to draw these lines. Because that guy in that moment, when Jesus isn't washing his hands and that guy did, you know what he's thinking. He's with astonishment, but he's looking at this guy going, how can anyone follow him? I'm better than him. I'm ritually clean. 
I'm doing all the stuff. I've gone through the steps. And look, Jesus isn't doing any of this stuff. He's posturing. He's saying, I'm better than him. And Jesus is like, man, you guys, you, you polish this stuff on the outside, but the law that was given you, you've used it for greed, and, and you've perverted even the law of God to suit your own benefit, to make you look good. You've made all this stuff about you. And then he's saying, you fools. He's like, don't you understand? This goes somewhere. This isn't just random. This affects your soul. And he's pointing back even to what he talked about, this idea of the resurrection. You are doing these things to your own peril. The end result of this is death. He says, God made both the outside and the inside. Don't you think he cares? So Jesus says, verse 41, he gives an example. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. One of the things that they were to do was to give alms, to take care of the poor, to give money to the poor. Now keep in mind the idea of perversion towards benefit. These guys, they're keeping the law, they're giving money to the poor, but they're doing it in such a way that brings them attention. They're doing it so that, number one, they can say, we follow all of the law. Look at how spiritual we are. And number two, they're doing it so that as they give, and we see other stories about this. Jesus talks about how when people give, they, they get all this attention. I am giving $5,000 to the poor. And it's so that they get attention. It's so that people glory in them, not in God. And he's saying, listen, give as alms the things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, guys... If you actually gave God your heart, then you would give alms to people out of a heart of love and of worship to God. And then those acts would actually be pure, not perverted. You understand what he's saying? He's saying the inner motives matter. And all this external stuff that you're doing, if it doesn't affect what's going in it's, or what's on the inside, then all of these things are actually perverted. They've been bent towards something other than God, and they're not accomplishing what's happening. So on the outside, you're clean, and on the inside, you're dirty. We're not, we're not evil. We give to the poor. Yeah, but you do it for your own attention. And if instead you would give your heart to God, you're going to end up being generous people who give to the poor. And then those acts would be pure because they would be acts of worship and, and a desire to honor God. But as they are, they're all about you, and so they're perverted. The light in you is actually darkness. You guys see what he's saying here? And so now he's going to start pushing hard on this. He, he hasn't even got to the hard part yet, okay? Jesus is now going to go on to declare three woes to the Pharisees, each exposing the heart behind their work. And we're going to have to go through them kind of quick because then he's got three more for somebody else who couldn't keep his mouth shut the whole time. So verse 42, check this out. He says, but woe to you Pharisees. He's warning them. Woe, man, watch out. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect the justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's, it's basically the same thing that he just said. In the, testament, or in the, the Old Testament law, um, the farmers were required to set aside 10% of their fields um, to be given to God, but to, given to God for specific purposes. It would be given to the worship centers of that time. It would be given to the ministers there. And it would be given to the foreigners and aliens. It would be given to the orphans and it would be given to the widows. 
It was God's way of taking care of people who were lost, people who were struggling. And the purpose for that was that they might come into this nation and be like, wait a minute, you guys, your whole, you set 10% of your field aside and I'm just some wandering dude from another nation and I come through and you're like, that's set aside for me? Why would you do that? And the people would say, because. We were in prison. We were in slavery. You don't even know the story of our people, man. We were in trouble. And God mercifully saved us and provided for us. And so we do this, not just to obey God, but it gives us the opportunity to meet with someone like you and tell the story of what God's actually done in our lives and to tell you about the God of this universe and to encourage you to repent from pagan religions and to follow this God because the Messiah is coming and one day will we be with him forever. You see how this missionary thing works? And so that's what they were required to do. But he's saying, well, you guys, you tithe all the way down to your mints and all this kind of stuff, but you're not doing it out of a heart of love and justice for others. You're doing it for your own attention, for your own religious pride, for your own religious hierarchy. You shouldn't be doing it that way. You should understand who God is and love and justice and mercy would flow from a heart that's been given to God. Instead, Again, the same idea. You're full of wickedness that has perverted the actual commands of God towards your own gain and away from what we've actually been called to do. Then he says, verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees! You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Again, this is social acknowledgement. You love coming to church. Not because you actually worship. Not because you're there to honor God. Not because you love getting together with God's people. You love coming to church because you get attention there. You love coming to church because when you walk in the door, people look up to you. You love coming to church because they think you're the one to follow. And you don't point them to me. Even the purpose of gathering has been perverted towards your benefit and not towards my glory. And then the heaviest one. Verse 44. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So, one of the things that would make you ceremonially unclean is if you ended up in contact either with a dead body or with an actual grave. And this was a big deal, especially if you were one of those religious leaders, because if you're a priest or a Levite or something like that, and you come into contact with a grave, you are ceremonially unclean for seven days, which means for seven days you cannot perform your duty. And so what they would do, every spring they would come and they would whitewash the tombs that are there. And the reason they did it is they wanted them to stand out so that you didn't end up walking along and accidentally come into contact with one of those graves. It was the equivalent of like putting orange cones or something around the dangers that are there so that when people saw them, they could go around them and they wouldn't be defiled. You know, what does that have to do with them? Think what Jesus is saying. He's like, you guys are like unmarked graves. He doesn't say it's like you've stepped on an unmarked grave. He's saying to the religious leaders, you're the unmarked graves and you've got all these people following you and they don't realize it, but they're not walking towards light and life. They're walking over unmarked graves and they are all ceremonially unclean because you're not leading them to a heart of grace. You're not leading them to worship God. You're just amassing followers to yourself. And in so doing, you are damning the people that are following you. You're not leading them to me. It's all about you. I mean, imagine that. Their lives have given to this. And he's not just saying, oh, you got unclean, you need to clean yourself up. He's saying, you are the source of uncleanliness 
for everyone who is following you. Ooh, that's a big deal. Now, you ever know that guy that gets caught red-handed doing something, and yet even when he's dead wrong, he'll still try to argue his way out of it? And if you don't know, you might be that guy. I've been that guy at times in my life. Uh, a lot of times now in this day and age, we call them lawyers. If you think about it, that's actually true. And if you're a lawyer here, I'm just kidding. I actually wanted to be a lawyer at one point. But um, the idea is like even a defense attorney, even if he knows his client is guilty, he's still going to argue it, right? Well, there's some lawyers in this room. And just sometimes it's just better to just shut up. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's just better to just... Mm-mm, no, I know what you're about to mm, zip it. Some people can't help it. And verse 45 is one of those guys. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, hear what he's saying. Lawyers are known for their mastery of the Old Testament. So they become a source even for the Pharisees in understanding what the scriptures are actually saying. These are the experts, Right? And when he says, in saying these things, you insult us also, he's saying two things. Number one, anything they've done that their teachings have now influenced these other religious leaders, obviously they're culpable in these things that they've done and led people astray. But that's not technically what the language is actually saying. What he's saying, he's calling Jesus out for being rude. He's actually saying, the way that you are speaking to us is insulting. He's saying, we don't like your tone. He's saying, you are being arrogant. Who are you to say such things? This is offensive. This whole thing is insulting us. Now, if you were talking to me and you were saying some things and I just said to you, hey, listen, the way that you're talking to me right now is offensive and insulting and arrogant. More than likely, most of you would then go into like a, oh, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Let me explain my heart. Most of you would go, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what I was trying to do. I apologize for that. Um, let me clarify what the heart is behind all this. Most people would do that, just not Jesus here, okay? Because this is kind of funny, it is. Um, and if, if you're in, like I said, if bathrobe, Swedish beard, dove, Jesus is the one that you've always pictured in your mind, this isn't fitting that paradigm. Because this guy's like, the way you're speaking to us is insulting. And he's like, okay, I got three woes for you. Like, just shush, shush. No, uh-uh, no apologetics, no explaining away. Oh, I'm glad you spoke. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's got now three for this guy. Look what he has to say here. Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. It's like all this Mishnah, think about all the law. I mean, the law in the scriptures is heavy. And then you go and you add all of these other things and you just pile things on people all the time. And the only thing you care about is transfer of information, but you have no heart for the people you're actually leading. Your heart's actually towards yourself. You love telling people what to do, but you don't care whether they actually succeed in doing it. And you certainly are not going to get your own hands dirty, so to speak, in helping them succeed in what you've taught them. So while we're talking about the heart of God, What about you represents the heart of God? That's what he's saying here. Verse 47, woe to you for you build the tombs of prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deed of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. 
Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What does he mean by this? Here's what he's saying. He's like, guys, on one hand, you operate in the exact same vein as your fathers. You view the law in the same way. You value the same things. You have the same heart. You do the same stuff. But these prophets that came and spoke the word of God, when your fathers killed them, you build elaborate tombs for them now because you want to honor the prophet that came and got killed. So at the same time, what you're doing, he's basically saying you're a hypocrite. On one end, you're honoring the poor prophet who was martyred. In another one, you're carrying on the same traditions of your father, so you're honoring them too. And building these fancy tombs doesn't take away the reality that you're killing the people of God. And history is marked over and over and over by repeated messengers of God coming to the people, being persecuted, rejected, or even killed. And building a monument to it or setting aside a national holiday doesn't change the fact that that happened, especially when you keep carrying on the exact same way. And then he said, oh, and by the way, this didn't happen in back alleys. Zechariah got killed right over there, like right at the temple. And he's like, so don't come to us with insults when you're, you're killing the prophets of God and then pretending to honor them as you continue operating the same way. That's hypocrisy. Verse 52, woe to you lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. I gave you guys, when, when I gave you, Israel, my covenant, when I gave you the law of Moses, that was to be the key. Even all the ceremonies, as, as people celebrate Passover, all these kind of things, that was supposed to be the key that unlocked the door so that the rest of the world could enter in and be saved. And what did you do? You were like, oh, we got this key, and it opens that door but we don't want just anybody walking through that door. So we better come up with some more locks. We better put some more chain locks and deadbolts and stuff some stuff under here. And we'll put some stuff in front of the door and put a chair in front of that. And we'll put all these different things in front of it so that the wrong guy doesn't get the wrong idea and come in because that's our territory there. And he's saying in the end, here's what you did. You had the key to lead people to salvation in me. And you didn't even enter in yourself. And you became the hindrance for people in the rest of the world to be able to come to me. That's heavy condemnation. Verse 53, And as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things. So um, lying in wait for them to catch him in something he might say. They're, they're kind of further goading him. So this was not a peaceful fellowship dinner. This was not a place where bridges were built. This is a place where hard lines were drawn and people on opposite sides of the aisle, you might say, actually got further entrenched. This was not a happy meal. And as Jesus is leaving, they're mad. And they're like, oh yeah, but what about? And oh, come on, elaborate on that. Why don't you tell us what you really mean by that, Jesus? And they're like pursuing him and trying to follow. And it says, verse one of the next chapter, chapter 12, verse one. And don't worry, we're only doing three verses. Number one, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And so here's the scene. He's leaving this dinner. He's got angry religious leaders coming at him, trying to pick a fight. 
and there's thousands of people that have gathered together wanting to hear Jesus teach or see him do signs or do more miracles. And he walks into this crowd and it says that he first gathers the disciples. Uh, in the meantime, when many thousands had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first. So he's, he's teaching his disciples primarily, but he's doing it in front of everyone so that everyone can hear this. That makes sense? And look what he says. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now understand something. Leaven or yeast is what we'd call it today. Um, really important symbol in what he's talking about. You say, why would he say beware the least of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy? Um, because that has its roots back in the original deliverance story. The first time that that leaven comes up, it is in the actual story of the Passover. When Israel is enslaved to Egypt, and Moses is sent by God to deliver them. The Passover happens. The people of Israel are about to be set free and, and to go. And so they're given instruction by God about how to prepare to get ready to go. And he's telling them, you're going to have to go quick. Your deliverance counts on it. He knows Pharaoh's going to change his mind and come after him. And so he's like, listen, when the moment comes, be ready. You're going to have to go quick. And he says, don't even make bread to take with you with yeast in it because you don't have time to wait for that yeast to rise. Just take what you got, be ready to go. You're going to have to be out of there quick. That's what he says. So that means that in that story, yeast is presented as something that could prevent you from being set free. Because if you wait too long, if you try to make the perfect food and you're trying to wait for that bread to rise just right and all that kind of stuff, everybody else is probably going to be gone. Pharaoh's going to change his mind and you're going to still be stuck here and enslaved. So yeast is something that prevents them from experiencing salvation. And he says the yeast of the Pharisees is what? Hypocrisy which is actually fitting. Hypocrisy is an acting term at that day. It's talking about a mask that allows you to pretend to be someone else that you're not, which actually parallels well with yeast because yeast in bread, it changes the composition on the outside. It makes it bigger and whatnot, but it doesn't change the substance of what you actually have. And this is what he's saying. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware being like them. If you live with that type of hypocrisy that will prevent you from being saved, don't do it. Don't be like that. Don't be the kind of people that look like they're the people of God, but you're about you. You have no heart for anyone else. You're about your prestige, your position. You have no love for God and no love for others. The two things that God and Jesus actually reasserts is the most important out of all of it. You have neither of those. What you have is a whole lot of love for self. Watch out. That will prevent you from experiencing the deliverance that I came to bring. This is what he is telling them. In church, hear me on this. Jesus condemned nothing more than this. And it's not even close. In our day and age, the sins that would cause astonishment for us are usually not this. It's usually like extreme acts of violence or, or, or sexual sin or uh, certain abuses or whatever the case may be. Things that are really evident on the outside, outward action. And Jesus is like, as bad as those might be, he condemned nothing more than this type of hypocrisy 
where it was all about the external stuff and all about the religious part, but the heart of the person on the inside was far from God. The person had no love for God and no love for others. No love for God's people and no love for the people that need God. Jesus crushes this stuff over and over and over. Second place in what he condemned isn't even close to this. And these, you have to understand, church, the Pharisees and lawyers, they, they really believed that their election was due to merit. They deserved it. They really believed that the light they had been given, God's word, the temple, all of these things that had been given only to Israel, they believed that these were like uh, marks of worthiness, not having anything to do with actual responsibility to do something with them. It was all about them. And they really believed they were better than everybody else. They genuinely believed that. And so often we do too. We do it too, all the time. Look down at the people in the cult or look down at the person on the street corner or look down at the person in the news who got busted for doing this, that, or the other. And we're so quick to point the fingers out there instead of considering our own hearts or to take our extra religious rules or our extra convictions or whatever the case may be and preach them as if they're gospel in such a way that makes us the holy one and the one who behaves differently than us, the one who's somehow beneath us. Jesus crushes that. And he says, that's not what this is about. He condemned nothing more than that. We have to do this fast, but I want you to consider with, with this in mind, hear what Jesus is saying. And now consider Philippians in this mindset. Look at Philippians chapter two. Look at what Jesus does say about someone who follows him. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Doesn't that stand out so completely opposite of everything Jesus is dealing with in this particular text? Like, he was totally willing to get his hands dirty for the sake of the people he was there to save. I mean, the priests and Pharisees who were all about the external cleanliness and the robes and the pageantry and the attention, and he was God, and set all of that aside, became a man. And I'm telling you, until the day that we see him, we will never fully understand what a downgrade that really was. Became man so that he could come and humble himself, considering others more significant. He set his own personal comfort and well-being completely aside and went to the cross, not just to die for us, but to carry our guilt on his shoulders on that cross. And he would say to the Pharisees, that's what the people of God look like. That, 
Not, look how perfect I am. I'm God's favorite. But no, I have received favor. And I follow the one who did this, which means I do this. This is a text on discipleship. This is not. A lot of people, and I can be, I was really tempted to when I first read it, teach this text as an attack on legalism to then go through all the different things that we add on top of the word and say, that doesn't matter, it's Christ alone. But what he's really ultimately talking about is mission. He's saying two things, understand where your salvation came from and then understand what that means. There is responsibility with that election. You have been called to be a missionary nation who puts its light up on a lampstand. So do not become the Pharisees who think it's all about them and they were worthy of being saved and then they won't lift a finger for anyone. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Consider another of his texts. One more. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him, speaking of disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the rhythm in this? He's saying that this is the heart of God. That the people who have been saved by God would love God, love one another, and love those who desperately need the salvation that we've experienced. And we don't get them there by standing and pointing fingers and all that. No one has ever been guilted from a street corner into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't believe. I believe what that happens is just condemnation that maybe God will use in a different way later. But that's not what we're supposed to look like. We're servants who are humble, who understand our salvation came through the grace of God, not because we deserved it. And then in response, we follow the example of our Savior And we happily get our hands dirty to be part of the program of God that brings salvation to others. That's what it means. That's what God has for you. People say, what's God's plan for my life? Church, if you are the redeemed people of God, this is God's plan for your life now. It's this. That we would be humble, that we would love God, that we would love others, and that we would have a heart for people who are dying without him and recognize that we are the rescue plan now. That this is what we're called to do. And then in final warning, verse 2 of Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the mountaintop. Go back to the idea Light is hope unless you're loving the darkness. And we can pretend. And we might pretend for a really long time. And we can put on the polished exterior. And we can look down our nose at other people. And we can be those who preach at others because preaching at others makes us feel really good and look really good. And we can use this and think about ourselves as being better than everyone else. You can do all of that and you can fool everybody for a really long time. But sooner or later, you're going to show that you're living what you actually believe. Sooner or later, the things that are going on in our hearts will be revealed. Is it a love for God? Is it a love for God's people? Is it a love and, and, and a mourning for those who don't have Jesus? Because that's what the heart of the Lord is for us. But if it's pride, if it's arrogancy... 
if it's favoritism, and if it's religion, we have missed the mark way more gravely than we realize. So Heritage for us, and it's a pretty fitting sermon going into next week, honestly. Because next week is our 10th birthday. And God has shown Heritage tremendous grace over the last 10 years. This church has grown and profited, and and I don't mean that like we made a lot of money. I just mean like for the kingdom of God, we have accomplished so many incredible things by God's grace and God's mercy. But I believe God would warn us as individuals, but also as the church and say, hey, don't think it's because of you. Don't make this about you. Understand why you're here in the first place. Remember how little you were in that little Jewett gym when you were nothing. When you were like, I don't even know how we're going to pay for anything. Remember what that was like. Recognize the grace I've poured out on you. But understand that there's a responsibility that's attached to the calling and election that's been given you. You've been saved for a purpose. And as you might, that purpose is that you might humbly go into the community around you and share the love of Jesus, that you might be a light in Medford, Oregon, in the ends of the earth, that you might make disciples for me, and that by being a disciple and by making other disciples, you would be a church of people who look like those texts, who will bend a knee, who will gladly get hands dirty for the sake of serving those who need it, who will love God and honor his commandments, but out of a heart of worship, not so that we look prideful. And that would look until, like, our, our, your best life now is when Jesus returns and when that light is made whole. That's the day that we're living for. And until then, we are servants of the Most High King for the purpose that Jesus wants to rescue more people around here. That's why we've been saved, church. So let's consider these things, pray about these things, both personally and even as a church, moving into our next 10 years and looking at where we want to go and where we're going to be. Man, the Lord is good. He is faithful. But if we waver away from the heart that he actually desires for us, sooner or later that will be exposed. And that's the heart that Jesus has crushed. Instead, may we be faithful disciples by the grace of God and by the leading of his Holy Spirit. Amen, church? That's a lot of stuff on a Father's Day, yeah? And you know what? I didn't even honor dads today, which is typical. I was at the ballet. For some reason, they always do ballet recitals on Father's Day weekend. I've never understood that. I guess it's to keep dads from taking little girls camping when they don't want to go. But actually, it wasn't the ballet. I'm wrong. It was my daughter's eighth grade graduation. With all the students up there, at one point, the principal of the school goes, all right, now, kids, everybody, thank mom and dad for all the support and all this kind of stuff. And all you heard was, thank you, mom. And that was all you heard. And dads were like, what? Yep, that's typical. That's typical. But even in that, may Father's Day still not even be about us. May Father's Day be about the fact that we have a loving father who has saved us. May that shape the way that we father and parent our own children. And so my encouragement for you dads, like we don't have any gifts for you today or anything like that. We're cheapskates. Um, but may you walk out of here glowing in the fact that you have a heavenly father who loves you. That's the best gift you could possibly have. And then may you see the gift and responsibility of fathering and parenting your own families there as well. And may you trust in God to do that. Amen, church? Will you stand with me and let's pray? I'm super late. Father, I thank you so much for this truth that you've shown us, Lord, though they're hard sometimes to consider and to think through. I pray, God, you would speak your will into our lives and by your spirit you would mold us. As followers of you, 
And as a, a vessel here in this community, Father, may we be those who accurately depict the loving Savior that came and rescued us. Lord, give us a greater heart of love for you, a greater heart of love for one another, and a greater heart of love for those who need you still. And may you lead us and use us to accomplish your will. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.